Okay, uh, hi everybody. Uh, we're continuing our uh, <coughs> discussion of marriage, we're coming towards the end of it, and then we'll move to divorce after that. But today I just want to go over what a ksuva says. You know that every Jewish marriage has to have a ksuva. Uh, now, it's a little tricky. A, a Jewish marriage is kosher, it's valid, it's valid, even without a ksuva, but it's sinful. By that I mean to say, that if I simply uh, give a woman you know, a ring or give her money in front of witnesses and I say, behold, you are married to me in accordance with the laws of Moshe and Yisrael, so she's married to me. She is married to me. However, I'm not allowed. A husband and wife cannot live together unless there's a ksuba. So people often make a mistake. People often say the marriage is not kosher unless there's a ksuba. Well, that's a little bit of a tricky statement. What does it mean it's not kosher? If you mean it's not valid, that's an untrue statement. Even if we don't have a ksuba, if I gave her the ring in front of witnesses, I have to give her a get. It is valid. You need a get for its dissolution. But if you mean it's not kosher in the sense that it's not a proper marriage, that's uh, very true. Okay, so I'm not sure if in common speech people differentiate between invalid and improper. Now, even in secular law, those are very, very different concepts. An invalid marriage would mean you don't even need a get. A Jew marries a guy, either side. It's not a marriage. In fact, invalid marriage means it's not a marriage. On the other hand, if a Kohen marries a divorced woman, that is not a kosher marriage, it's a prohibited marriage, but it is a marriage in that he would have to divorce her. She could not marry somebody else until he gives her a get. So in terms of invalidity, invalidity is a relatively small category of cases. A marriage is invalid, which is the same thing as saying it's no marriage if it's a goy, or if it's incestuous, or if the woman is already married and somebody would marry an already married woman, it would be zero. Uh, or uh, the witnesses are not good. Right? The witnesses are not Shomer Shabbos. Those are cases of invalid marriage, which is the same thing as saying not a marriage. But a lot of things that are sinful are still considered to be valid after the fact. So marrying a woman without a kasuva is a valid marriage, but an improper marriage that has to be rectified. A Kohen marrying a divorced woman or all the other women who Kohen cannot marry, usually those are valid marriages, but they're improper. So once again, therefore, you have to understand that the failure to have a ketuva does not mean the marriage is invalid, but it means the marriage is improper, and therefore it, ha- it needs to be fixed. I'm sorry, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was going to ask, though, so instance where a Cohen marries a divorced woman, is that under improper? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, if a Cohen marries a divorced woman, a Cohen marries a convert, uh, a Cohen marries a woman that had relations with a non-Jew, uh, all of those are prohibited marriages. But if he did do it, they are married after the fact, which means, in other words, a Bastin would order them to get a divorce, but they would need a Jewish divorce. They would need a get. On the other hand, if a man marries a non-Jewish woman, 
or a Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man, that is not a marriage. There's no need for a get. There's no need for anything, anything at all. So ksuba falls under the category of, it's a valid marriage, but it's not a kosher marriage. Now, a ksuba, and in fact, not only that, even if there was a ksuba, if the ksuba got lost, it got misplaced, it got destroyed, they are not allowed to dwell under the same roof until a replacement kasuva is drawn up. That means the woman has to know at all times where is her kasuva. She doesn't have to have it in her hand. In fact, it doesn't have to be in her house. It could be in a safe deposit box in a Swiss bank. And that's perfectly fine. But she has to know where it is and at any point where she doesn't know where it is, a new kasuva has to be written up. This is called the replacement kasuva and, and, and the like. This is actually a fairly common problem when people move or people make aliyah or whatever it is. You know, because a kasuva you normally just put away and you, know, you don't necessarily keep it in a special place. It's just in the house. But when it's in the house, you know, it may get lost. And if it gets lost, that's a, a serious, uh, serious problem. The guy myself had to, uh, we had to redo our ksuba. It was not, not the best day to do it. It was like Purim, in the middle of a Purim suit. I, I don't know exactly how it came up, but we became aware. So it's not so easy to find, you know, kosher witnesses uh, on Purim. Everybody's drunk, you know. <laughs> but whatever, we managed to, uh, this was years ago, we managed to uh, do a replacement ksuba on Purim. Um, okay, so what is the ksuba? So what's interesting is you'll sometimes see English translations of the ksuba, but in my experience, the English translations are totally, uh, they're not even translations. They're totally different than the actual ksuba itself. The English translation will say, you know, uh, it'll be like wedding vows, you know, I pledge my eternal loyalty, etc. Uh, the ksuba is a very business-like document. It's actually a contract. Uh, and the ksuba is in Hebrew letters, but it's in Aramaic. Now, you may know, I understand that you learn uh, Gemari here too. So, you know, Aramaic uh, is similar to Hebrew, but it's, it, it is a different language. Uh, and even if a person knows Hebrew, they might not understand Aramaic. Uh, so you may ask, so why would the Ksuba be written in Aramaic? Because Aramaic, in fact, was the vernacular for many, many centuries. In fact, there were many, many Jews who knew Aramaic and didn't know Hebrew that well. So writing something in Aramaic, even though it's very obscure to us, maybe, was actually like writing something in English. So the Talmud was written in Aramaic to make it easier uh, for people uh, to understand. Today, there are no Jewish, uh, well, there are no significant Jewish communities that speak Aramaic as a spoken language. We know Aramaic from our learning of rabbinic literature. So if you know Gemara, you know some Aramaic. But even someone who knows Gemara, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able, for example, to have a conversation in Aramaic. I, probably, I might understand one, but I, I couldn't just speak in Aramaic. So uh, if you want to uh, really see Aramaic or hear Aramaic as a spoken language, you have to actually go to some Christian villages in Syria. There are Christian villages that still speak Aramaic as their language. And I believe the Kurds do as well. Uh, there are Kurdish communities that do, and some Jews from Kurdish communities uh, utilize Aramaic as a spoken language. In fact, it used to be Aramaic was so common among Jews, among Jews, so it's not a Jewish language per se, 
but it was a very common language among Jews, that in the Torah reading, every time a Pasuk was said by the Balkore, there would be a translator in Aramaic. This was the job. He would translate. While we have Targumunklus, we have it in the Chumash, but it would actually be translated in Kriyas HaTorah itself. That person was called the Matorgaman. That means the, the translator. Okay, so the Ksuba is in Aramaic. Okay. So, yeah. Wait, but why is it still in Aramaic? Huh? Why is it still in Aramaic? So that's the way uh, Judaism is sometimes, meaning once certain customs got established, you know, they just stay the way they are. But to tell you the truth, if you were to write a kasuba in English, assuming you have the proper text, it would certainly be kosher. So there's no halacha that it must be in Aramaic, but there's a standardized text, yeah. Aside from the kasuba that the married couple keeps and has to maintain yeah. throughout their marriage, is yeah. there like a database also that like keeps track of like all So so this depends. In the United States, by and large, there is not. Now in Israel, every time you get married in Israel, a copy of your kasuba must be mailed to the rabbinate, to the chief rabbinate, which keeps the kasubas on file. Now in many ways that makes life a lot easier because halakhically that would mean that even if you lose your kasuba, you're not really prohibited from being together because you can get access to it on the database. Now, I'm not sure if the database is open to the public, but if you have a request, you can request access and uh, you'll get access to your kasuba. So it's not a, it's not a public records database, but uh, each person who needs to have access will be able to get their kasuba from the rabbinut's file. In the United States, that's really not true. So it's actually up to the rabbi who marries them. Each rabbi makes his own decision, in a sense. There are rabbis who are very, very organized, who will have a copy of every kasuba mm-hmm. that they supervise. There are other rabbis that just, you know, they don't pay any attention to it at all, and the whole responsibility is on the couple uh, to keep their kasuba. And if they lose it, you know, they're going to have to have halakhically make a replacement Replacement. Okay, so what does a ksuva say? Okay, so the ksuva says a lot of things, and I'll go over each of them. Uh, the first thing the ksuva says is that the husband agrees to support his wife during the marriage. Now, that's a very interesting point. According to halacha, a husband is obligated to support his wife. That means food, shelter, clothing and the like, and the general standard is in the manner to which she is accustomed. So if she was used to a higher standard, he has to supply her. He cannot give her bread and water and everything else. Now let's stop right there. The husband is obligated to support his wife. Now you may immediately ask the obvious question that we have so many religious couples here in Jerusalem or other places as well, where the husband is learning in uh, yeshiva, learning in kolel, and the primary breadwinner, at least for a number of years, is the wife. The wife brings in more money than the husband, and she is the one that supports the family on the grounds that the husband is doing all of this great spiritual work, and she is supporting him, and therefore she has a share in everything that he achieves. All of that is beautiful, all of that is fine, but the question simply is, isn't this a violation of the obligation of the kasuva that a husband must support his wife. So the short answer is this. In halacha, there's a very important principle that any monetary obligations can be modified by mutual agreement. This is very important 
There are many halachos that you cannot modify. We, we can't, for example, agree to do work on Shabbos. We can't agree to eat pig. It's not up, it's not up to us to agree to those things because Hashem's commandments cannot be changed. But when you're dealing with obligations between people, monetary obligations, debts, and the like, even if there's an obligation, I mean, I mean if, you, if I owe you $100 and you're willing to forgive it, then halacha says I don't have to pay it because you have forgiven it. Right? That's a general rule that when it comes to monetary obligations, economic obligations, they are subject to waiver, forgiveness, mutual agreement, and the like. So support is exactly the same thing. Every woman is entitled to have her husband support her. This is your right. But a woman can also say that I understand the higher purpose of studying Torah for a while, so I will agree to temporarily forego my rights to support in exchange for your studying Torah. Tech, the technical word for that is machila. Machila, tamocha, you know, I forgive you, so, you know, I'm sure you hear the word machila a lot by Yom Kippur, amocha you, but the truth is, its primary use is in monetary obligations. When I release you from a debt that you owe me, that is called, I am mochel, the debt. So essentially what kolel is, a woman is mochelet, that's the feminine, she is mochelet, her right to support for the time that her husband is in Kolo. Now, philosophically, this gives rise to a very interesting perspective. That actually means that no man has the right to go to Kolo. It's really the other way around. The woman has the right to say, go get a job. If the woman is nice enough to let her husband be in Kolo, that is something he has to appreciate. You see, there's a different orientation. It's not like, you know, you have to support me while I'm in Kolo. No, he, no, you don't have to. But the question is, do you agree that that would be the best thing? And again, I'm not here to push one way or the other. Many people feel it is a beautiful way to start a marriage. That's, uh, you know, you'll come to that bridge when you, uh, when you have to cross it, whatever it is. But all I'm saying is, it works not because the husband has a right to make such a demand, it works through the principle that the woman can forego her right of support. Okay. So that's the first thing, right of support. So uh, my first observation was that even though in many cases a, a woman is not uh, being supported, but that's because of mechila. Uh, my second observation is that with respect to the right to support, the written kasuva is actually superfluous. Because this is not an obligation because of the ksuba. This is an obligation because of the marriage. So even if they wouldn't have a ksuba, he'd have to do it anyway. In other words, he can't say, oh, we never had a ksuba, so I don't have to support you. Marriage creates the obligation. So, the, so with respect to the support aspect of the ksuba, the, the ksuba is just a written formalization of what the husband already has to do. In other words, it doesn't create the obligation, it records it, it memorializes it. And even if there's no ksuba, I have to support my wife, unless she's mochelet. Okay, that's the first thing it does. The second thing it does 
is provide a benefit, a certain financial benefit, when the marriage is terminated. Now, a marriage could be terminated in one of two ways. Death of husband or divorce. We'll talk about death of wife, but, but this part of the Ksuba is talking about what is a wife's right when a marriage is terminated. Meaning, what is the wife's right when she is widowed? Or what is the wife's right when she is divorced? Right? This is a post-marriage economic benefit. So the Ksuba says the following. Now here's already we start getting into difficulties. The Ksuba says, if a woman is divorced or a woman is widowed, she is entitled to collect a sum that is defined as 200 zuz. So the value of a ketuva is 200 zuz. Now, the obvious question is, what on earth is 200 zuz? What is a zuz? Well, we actually know that for two zuz you can buy a goat. That's actually, that's actually the song Chad Gadja at the end of the Seder. Uh, my, my father bought a goat for two zuzi, two zuz, right? So that actually means a ksuva can get you 10 goats, just following the, following the ratio. So what exactly is a zuz? So, so as you might expect, there's actually a lot of uncertainty because here's the problem. A zuz was a silver coin. It was like, you know, a penny, a quarter. A zuz was a silver coin that was used during the temple period. Now, here's a very, I'm going to give you a very important halachic principle that you have to understand. When we convert halachically ancient coins to modern currency, in other words, you would, you would obviously ask the question, uh, what is a zuz in shkalim or what is a zuz in dollars? How do you convert it? How do you convert ancient money, any ancient money, into modern money? So the way halacha does it, this may be different than secular, is halacha uh, converts it by virtue of the metallic weight in the coin, meaning you look at the amount of silver in a zuz coin and you then translate it into how much that amount of silver would cost in contemporary prices. In other words, you're not really comparing money. You're simply looking at the silver weight, or the gold weight, in this case the silver weight of the coin, and then assigning it a market value. Which means we're not interested in how much bread a Zeus could buy or how many goats a Zeus could buy. We're interested in how much <laughs> silver was in a Zeus coin. And then you ask yourself, how much would that silver be worth today in dollars? Okay, I'll give you an illustration in a moment. So, how much silver was in Azus? So, as you would expect, there are many, many different opinions with many different proofs, so, so we can't go into all of it, but I just want to give you one major opinion so you'll understand the general concept. Let's take a mitzvah of Pidyon Haben, redeeming the firstborn, right? When you have a firstborn male, so you have to give a certain amount of silver 
to a Kohen. Now, the amount of silver that the Torah says you have to give to a Kohen is five selas, which is another coin. So just take it on trust that a sela equals four zuz. So in other words, pidgin aben is 20 zuzim. The Chazanish writes that 20 zuzim are 100 grams of silver. 20 zuz, 100 grams of silver. Which would mean, in other words, one zuz is five grams of silver. Is that right? One second. Um, one second. Twenty. I'm getting mixed up here. Uh, Twenty grams. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Twenty zuz. Twenty zuz is a hundred grams. So one zuz is five grams. Right. Okay. So one zuz is five grams of silver. One zuz is five grams of silver. 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of silver. In fact, a simpler way of saying it is it's 10 times the silver of Pidgin Aben. Pidgin Aben is 20 zuzim. A ketuvah is 200 zuzim. So if 20 zuzim is 100 grams of silver, then 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of silver. Okay, so when all is said and done, when a woman is divorced or a woman is widowed, she is entitled, of course there'll be much more I'll add, but at this point she is entitled to the dollar amount or the shekel amount of 1,000 grams of pure silver. Now you understand, therefore, that it's actually impossible to give a definitive dollar amount for a kasuva because the price of silver always changes. She is entitled to get the value of 1,000 grams of silver. Sometimes silver is at a very high price and sometimes silver could be at a low price. Over the past 50 years, I, don't have, I happen not to have the price of silver for today, but it can range anywhere from $5 to $300 grams. So you, you see the point, you see the difficulty here, meaning to say you cannot determine how much money this ksuva is until you determine the price of silver per gram. A ksuva of 200 zuz is the value of 1,000 grams of silver. Of course, you can ask me another question. Is that 1,000 grams on the date of the marriage or 1,000 grams on the date of widowhood or divorce? I mean, <laughs> there could be market changes there, right? Is a ksuva based on the date of the contract or the date that payment is due, right? Payment is due upon death or divorce. Now, this is a common problem in any legal system when you have, uh, you know, uh, currency uh, rates of exchange. You know, you, bar you borrow shkolem and you're going to pay in dollars and there's a, there's a difference in the exchange rates on the date of the loan and the date of the payment and you've got to figure out what that is. 
So once again, there's a machlokas. We won't get into it for reasons I'll get into. Ksuvas are usually not collected, but, 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 but I just want you to understand how it's based, right? So 200 zuz is 1,000 grams of pure silver, which can be anywhere between, let's say, $5,000, not very much if it's $5 an ounce, to $30,000 or $300,000 if it's much higher which is kind of a strange thing in many ways. In many ways, it's very strange that a single amount in a ksuva can fluctuate so dramatically based on silver. Now, there is another way of valuing ksuva, which is a minority opinion, and they say that we see from the Gemara that the ultimate purpose of this 200 zuz was an amount of money that could support a woman for one year. In other words, this is not long-term alimony. This is short-term support in the hope that she would get remarried again. So the 200 zuz was the approximation of what a person's support needs were for a year. Based on that, some posts can have made the argument that 200 zuz as a figure, as a figure, is a symbolic figure. Not meant to be taken literally at all, and it simply means the woman is entitled to one year spousal support. And if that's going to be 50,000, 60,000, 100,000, depending on where she lives, it'll be that. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking the 200 zuz and you're no longer looking at it as a metallic weight, but you're looking at it as a sum that could support a person for a year, and that will be determined by consumer price indexes, you know, all sorts of other ways, because we're not going to be concerned with how many, how many grams are zuzim or whatever it is. That's not important. Uh, rather, we're looking at the support needs for a year, and, of course, that changes from locality to locality, etc. So, for example, uh, New York is much more expensive than, uh, than South Dakota, so it really depends on where the woman uh, will be living as a widow or as a divorcee. So these are the two big machloksim. How to look at the 200 zuz? Do I look at it based on silver weights, which turns into a thousand grams of silver? And then I got to consult the local price of silver per gram. Or is it based on a year of support, in which case uh, it's a symbolic number simply representing what it was, what was needed for a year of support. And then I have to look at, economically, what does it take to live in that given locality. As I say, though, that's kind of, that is a minority position. The majority position actually looks at it, 1,000 grams of silver, in other words, 10 times the amount of pigeon haben. Uh, pigeon haben is 20 zuz. Uh, 20 zuz uh, is, the chazanish says, is 100 grams. By the way, all of those are also machloksim. I mean, I'm, just, I'm just keeping it straight by only giving you one opinion as to how much silver is in a, is in a, a zuz. There are like 10 other opinions on that, but I just want to go to two basic opinions about the 200 years. Now, one more thing about this. 
the hundred zuz, I'm sorry, the two hundred zuz is halved. It is cut down to a hundred zuz if the woman was married before. So if she was widowed before, or if she was divorced before, um, or if she converted, a giyoris, the kasuva is knocked down from 200 to 100, which would actually mean, however you compute the 200, the 100 is going to be half of that. Okay, so the halacha discriminates in those cases. But once again, let me point out, based on the principle of waiver, if a husband voluntarily wants to give his previously married wife a full 200 zuz of ksuba, he is permitted to do so, meaning there's no prohibition in doing it. Okay, so that is, so so far I mentioned two parts of the ksuba. One is the obligation of support during the marriage. And the second is a, a financial benefit upon death or divorce, uh, which can range uh, from anywhere between $3,000 to $300,000, depending on the silver weight and also depending on the support needs and, and the like. And then we have the chiluk, the difference between the ksuva for a first marriage and the ksuva for a second marriage. Yeah. Um, this makes sense for the widowed, or no, sorry, for the divorced woman, but for the widowed woman, is this money coming from like their funding? And wouldn't she get all of yeah, okay, so I'm going to talk about that. You are correct that for a widow, there are certain complications. So maybe keep widow to the side. I'm going to come back to it. But let's just talk about the divorced woman. So one thing you see about the divorced woman right away in halacha, the divorced woman in halacha does not get alimony. Now, alimony is that, you know, I got to support my wife until she remarries. According to halacha, a divorced woman is not entitled to any support beyond the kasuva. And as I indicated, the kasuva was estimated to be one year of support, or however you compute it. So halacha generally does not award alimony to a divorced woman beyond the kasuva. I will talk about child support, which is not in the child support is not in the kasuva at all. I'll, I'll talk about that. Now, let me continue with the ksuva, then I'm going to go back and elaborate on widowhood. Uh, yeah. um, um, what happens if the husband doesn't have enough money to support his wife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you're talking about even during the marriage? You're talking about even during the marriage? Yeah. Let's say he dies, yeah. and he doesn't have like $30,000. Okay, I'll, we'll, 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 we'll come to it. I'll, I'll come to it. Let me just finish what's in the ksuva, and then we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. yeah, okay. Next thing in the ksuva is something that is called Tosefes Kesuva. Tosefes is additional gift, meaning to say there is the base Kesuva, which is an obligation, that's the 200 Zuz for first marriage and 100 Zuz for second marriage. And that is not waivable, by the way. If a wife wants to have less than that, no, that has to be there. But then it was customary that husbands would add extra. Now, what's interesting is, this is very fascinating. Obviously, if you're calling something extra, that means by definition it's not mandatory. I could add as much as I want. I could say a million dollars. 
In addition to the 200 zuz, I pledge another $2 million to my wife. I could do that. Or theoretically, I could do nothing. In other words, the idea of a tosefes is optional. You can go as high as you want. Me, I'm speaking in terms of the husband. The husband can go as high as he wants. Or the husband can do nothing at all. Now, in Svardic Kisuvos, they tend to go with whatever figure the husband wants. Or they, they won't go with nothing because that's bad taste. But, you know, the husband might say a million dollars or whatever it is. But strangely enough, in Ashkenazic Kisuvos, what should have started off as, what should be a discretionary amount has actually become fixed. <laughs> Meaning to say, the Tosefes Kisuva, which is the discretionary amount in an Ashkenazic Kisuva, has become standardized. Now, I want to point out, this is not halacha. If the husband says, I want to put in something higher or lower, he has the right to do that. But the rabbi is going to frown on it. The rabbis probably say, I've never heard anyone do that. So the funny thing is that things which were optional kind of have become, you know, calcified, as it were. And uh, the way it is is this. The amount of Tosefet Kesuva, this is going to be even stranger, is 100 zakukin of silver. So we're dealing with very confusing denominations. The main kasuva is 200 zuz, 100 zuz for second marriage. And then the tosefes kasuva is 100 zakukin, which for a second marriage goes down to 50 zakukin. Not zuzim, not zuzim, zakukim. What on earth is a kukim? Zuz, at least, we have Chadgadja, and Zuz, we know from the Gemara, was a coin in the time of the Second Temple. There is no coin in Chazal that's called a zakuk. Okay, what, what, what is a zakuk? There's no coin by that name. The answer is, zakuk is not a rabbinical term. Well, it's not a Talmudic term. Zakuk is a Hebrew translation of a large silver coin that was used in Germany and Poland during the Middle Ages, which also contained a certain silver content. Again, you see what happened. I understand there's something unrealistic here. Essentially, we're using texts that were written in the Middle Ages for currencies that would be familiar. If you would be writing a ksuba or reading a ksuba 600 years ago, you would know that a zakuk referred to certain coins that were used in Germany and Poland, and they had precise weights. Today, it's shrouded in mystery in many ways. So in the postgim, there are tremendous uncertainties of conversion factors. Many have said, some say, well, some say, that the silver content of a zakuk is four times that of a zuz, and some say it is as high as 50 times that of a zuz. So now, 
let's just play around with the numbers a little bit. Again, I'm not going to give you a test to get to a computer exact kasuvas. Let's assume, based on the chazonish, that a zu, one zuz is five grams of silver. One zakuk, if you go with a four to one ratio, would be 20 grams of silver. And if you go with a 50 to one ratio, it would be 250 grams of silver. That's one zakuk. The tosefet is 100 zakuk. Not 200, 100. Okay, so you multiply, once again, you multiply the silver content of zakuk, not by 200, but by 100, and that will give you your ratio. So, in terms of the 200 zuz, that actually means that if you go with the 4 to 1 ratio, 100 zakuk will be double the amount of the ksuvah, because it's only 100. And if you go with a 50 to 1 ratio, it'll be 25 times. Well, you see why I'm doing it? Because if it's 50 to 1, but you're only multiplying it by 100 instead of 200. So a 50 to 1 ratio will be 25 times the ksuvah. A 4 to 1 ratio will be two times the ksuvah. So if the, if the Iker ksuvah, let's say, is $5,000, Right, so the the hundreds of kukim can be uh, twenty thousand dollars or um, or two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, um, okay. But again, um, we don't have to figure out every every possible configuration, but just to understand what's going on here. If this may sound incomprehensible today, because the ksuba is worded in currencies that are extinct and we don't know exactly what they correspond to. Zakuk is a Hebrew word for a large medieval silver coin. But there were many large medieval silver coins with different silver weights. So even if we're confident that we know a zuz is five grams of silver because that's rooted in the Talmudic text, we're not sure how many grams of silver are in the zakuk, other than it's very much larger than the zuz. And the multiple would be four or up to 50, and then because it's 100 rather than 200, you would then have that. So a four to one ratio would give you double the ksuva, a 50 to one ratio would give you 25 times the ksuva. Okay, that is called the tosefes ksuva. Okay, so again, to just review what we mentioned, First part of the ksuva is duty to support during marriage. Second part of the ksuva is the benefit of 200 zuz upon death or divorce, which goes down to 100 zuz if it's a second marriage. Uh, and then the third part is tosefet ksuva, which according to the halakha could be whatever the person wants to give or nothing at all. But in the Ashkenazi ksuva, it has become pegged at 200 zakuk, and I showed you how to calculate that, which for a second marriage, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, one, I'm sorry 100 zakuk, 100 zakuk, which in a second marriage goes down to 50 zakuk.
It's a little confusing. The Iker Kesuva is 200 Zuz, which goes down to 100 Zuz. The Tosefes Kesuva is 100 Zakuk, that goes down to 50 Zakuk. Uh, yeah. Is this considered like a, a, a prenup? This is, well, this is some form of prenup. Prenup, Uh, Now, again, this doesn't dispense with the need for prenup for other matters, but Mm. this is a, certainly, the ksuva is the first prenup, for sure, Mm. for sure. Yeah. Um, Doesn't the system of giving converted or divorced women previously, uh, like, only giving them a hundred years, doesn't this, like, contribute to unhealthy, like, a societal hierarchy of women and judgment towards women who were previously married? Yeah. Yeah, I I think the issue that you're raising is is a much more difficult issue for converts. I think the theory behind second marriages getting less ksuva is that she already has some economic protection from the first ksuva that she collected. So there there's no need to give her full protection because she has some protection. The case of a convert, however, is a stronger question. Because in the case of a convert, she wasn't necessarily married before. Even if she wasn't married before, she only gets half of a ksuva. Uh, the question is, uh, why should she, you know, be discriminated against? Uh, it is a very, very, it is a very good question. Um, it goes back to a certain assumption that was made, uh, which again may not always apply in every case, that the people who came from these uh, non-Jewish societies were often promiscuous and therefore uh, they were not virgins and therefore halakhically it had the status of second second marriages. But as I say, that may or may not be the case in any given in any given case. Does this even apply if she was converted as a young child? So that's an answer? interesting question. Uh, some say uh, if she was converted below the age of three, uh, then that would be tantamount to being born Jewish. Above the age of three already, people were afraid of you know anything that could happen. But you know these are difficult. I I, I don't have a a clear answer to this. It, it is a very good question. Um, okay, now so I so, so we have three things you mentioned so far, right? Uh, support during marriage, the what's called Iker kasuva. Iker is the main kasuva, and the second one is tosefet kasuva. Now the third one, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth one is also very very interesting. Uh, because once again, uh, you're going to see an example of Ashken- the Ashkenazi Suva kind of being calcified, and that is the right of a woman to a return of whatever property she brought into a marriage. Now let's talk about this a little bit. In the olden days, and even today sometimes, a woman was expected to bring in a dowry, or, or, or even without a dowry, don't call it a dowry, it's simply a question of a person comes in with assets, today maybe even more so, because you have women who are already working, they already have careers, so the woman may have a car, she may have a bank accounts, uh, she owns things, right? These are property that she brings into a marriage. So what are her rights? This is where the prenup comes in again. What are a woman's rights to the property she brought in to a marriage when there's death or divorce, when there's death of husband or divorce? So Halacha says there are two ways this can be dealt with, and it all depends on mutual agreement, meaning they have to agree to how the property is going to be dealt with. And um, 
Let's take one tangible example. Let's imagine a woman inherited or she owns. It makes a difference if she bought it or she inherited it. She owns an apartment building. And the apartment building generates rent. Right? She owns uh, an apartment on Fifth Avenue, Manhattan, and uh, there are 20 tenants and uh, she gets $10,000 a month or more. Actually, in Manhattan, that's one apartment, so whatever. She gets $50,000 a month in rentals, although obviously a lot of that will be used in expenses in maintaining the building. Okay. So, how is that apartment building dealt with when she gets married halachically? So halacha gives two different ways of handling it. One way is called nichse melug, and the other way is called nichse tzon barzo. Now this is a little bit of advanced treatment here. The word nichse just means property. So property that's maluk, an odd word, or property that is iron sheep. What do those expressions mean? Malug comes from the term plucking a chicken. When you pluck a chicken, you're moleg. Moleg, S-ha-of. So plucking means the woman retains ownership of the asset, but the husband gets the benefit of the fruits and the income. That would actually mean that during the marriage, she is the owner of that apartment building, but the husband has the right to the rentals. Now again, this can be changed by agreement, but, but I'm just saying this is what Malug is. And what that means is, upon death or divorce, she gets the building back. The building is hers, and from that point on, of course, all rentals are hers. But during the marriage, the husband gets the benefit of what's called the payros, the fruit, the legal term, for that in other contexts is the use of fruit. Now that's called malug because she owns the chicken and he gets the he gets the feathers, so to speak, or he gets the eggs. Now, in terms of her, this gives her the risk of depreciation and the benefit of appreciation. Because the husband certainly cannot sell that apartment building because she owns it. The building is in her name. The building is hers. So, if at the time of the marriage it was worth $100,000, and at the time of divorce it is now worth a million dollars, she gets the building. If it's worth a million dollars, it's her building. If, on the other hand, real estate depreciates, and a building that was worth $100,000 at the time of the marriage has now declined to $50,000, that's her loss, meaning her only claim is to the actual property. She gets the property back. And in an extreme case, if the property got destroyed and was uninsured, which is you know, relatively uncommon, the husband has no obligation, even though he got rentals for 25 years. The risks are totally on her. She gets the benefit of appreciation and she gets the risks of depreciation, and if it gets destroyed, it's her loss. That is what is called nichse malug. Now, this is not automatic. This is what they could agree to. If they, if they, if they, if they check the nichse malug box, that's how it works. Now, 
There's another property arrangement that is called iron sheep. Iron is something you can't, it's hard to destroy. That's where the woman is given a guarantee. That basically means the actual asset becomes the husband's property, but the husband is obligated to compensate her for the value of the property at the time she brought it in. So if she brought in a million-dollar apartment building, he will owe her a million dollars. He takes the risks of depreciation. He will have to pay her a million dollars. The other way around, if it appreciated, he would get the benefit of the appreciation because the property is his, but he has a financial commitment to reimburse her for the value. Now, there are many, many hybrids, and in fact, probably in most marriages, things are hybrid, and I'll get to that. But in halacha, the classic dichotomy was nichse mulug or nichse tzon barzo. Now, in the kasuva, it was historically the case that nichse mulug, since nichse mulug does not involve any financial commitment on the part of the husband, the only thing is she just gets the building back, that was not even mentioned in the Ksuba. That is called outside of the Ksuba. However, when there was a Nichseitzon Barzel commitment, I hereby agree to reimburse my wife for the value of the assets she brought to the marriage, then those assets would have to be specified in the Ksuba and actually valued. The, the agreed upon value is. This, 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 a million dollars for the apartment, you know, uh, whatever it would be. So, if you would have looked at Iksuva 500 years ago, you would actually see a schedule. It looks like a real business document. A schedule of assets that wife is bringing in with an agreed-upon value that the husband agrees to pay her upon death or divorce. You see? This is not the Malug. The Malug stuff was not even in the Ksuba because the Malug was not a financial commitment. The Malug was simply saying, you'll get back your house. But when there was a financial commitment, it was spelled out in the Ksuba. Now, in Sephardic Ksubas, you might still see this feature. It might say in a Sephardic Ksuba, uh, the woman brought in an apartment building which has been assessed at $1 million dollars the husband agrees to pay $1 million upon death or divorce. And the Sephardic Ksuvas are more interesting than Ashkenazi Ksuvas because they do have variation. They have these details. But for some reason in the Ashkenazi Ksuva, they stopped assessing specific assets and they gave a standardized amount that in exchange for the property the woman brought in, the husband agrees to pay X amount. And the X amount is the same, strangely enough, as the Tosefes Kesuva of a hundred Zakukim. And for a second marriage, fifth, now I have to say, to ha- have this for a second marriage makes no sense at all, actually, because you're dealing with property coming in. I mean, who cares if it's a second marriage or a tenth marriage? The property is the same. Now, so you're going to hear in a ksuba, 
a hundred Zakukim mentioned twice. Once for the Tisephus Kasuva and once for the return of property that a woman brought into the marriage. And both times it'll be a hundred, a hundred. And for a second marriage, 50, 50. Okay, so Basachako, for a first marriage, the Kasuva is 200 Zuz plus 200 Zakuk or Zakukim. Okay, because 100, 100. Now, you may ask, why on earth did Ashkenazim create an artificial number for the return of property? Return of property surely should be valued. So the answer actually is, it dated from a time when families were quite poor and women often did not bring in any assets to the marriage. So the 100 zakuk was giving them a benefit of calling an entitlement to a return even though they brought in less than that. What that means is, right, be sure you uh, bring your cousin the lawyer to your wedding. What that means is, if you're bringing in more than that, you should actually amend the ksuba to reflect that. Why, why should you be limited to the hundreds of cook if you brought in you know, a million-dollar apartment building and the like? In other words, the ksuba picked an artificial amount to give more to a person who brought less, not to bring less to a person who brought more. Okay, people don't even know what the ksuba says, but, but that's the third part. Okay, so again... Um, I'm losing count of my parts. I think that was four parts. Mm-hmm. We have the obligation of support. We have the 200 Zuz, which is called the Iker Kasuva. We have the 100 Zakuk, which is called Tosefes Kasuva. And we have the 100 Zakuk, which is Nichseit Son Barzel, the return of property. Uh, and that is in addition to the nichse, whatever Nichseit Muluk arrangement they make, which is an arrangement outside of the property. Yeah, I hope this is not too complicated, um, but I hope you get the general, the general picture uh, of this and how the ksuva really is a you know, relatively sophisticated prenuptial agreement. Now, the fifth part of the ksuva is your, your, your set of questions, and that is the enforcement mechanisms. Right, so uh, when a man dies or a man divorces, she is entitled to collect money, whatever those amounts of money are. How do you enforce it? So the kasuva creates, I'm gonna use the English word for this, uh, the legal term, a lien, lien is L-I-E-N, a lien on all of the property that the husband owned from the time of the marriage onward, and there's even an expression, even the shirt on his back. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, I remember when I taught law, I, I came across a case. It was just a, a fun case, but it was interesting that uh, a guy was very angry at the amount of taxes uh, he had to pay the IRS, income tax. So he said, you guys are ripping the shirt off my back. So he sent a check to the IRS on his shirt. He wrote a, he paid his taxes <laughs> on his shirt. They cashed the check. Now, you know, you know normally that, that requires special handling. You know, normally checks are processed very automatically, right? If you write a check on a crazy thing, it's going to be sent back. But the IRS went to the trouble 
of like special bank processing. Uh, so he actually wound up, he lost his shirt and he had to pay his taxes uh, at the same time. So this is a common expression. So the common expression, they took the shirt off my back, is actually taken from the ksuba. The ksuba, which is, you know, I think, I, think that's, I think that's the oldest use of the expression, that the husband, in the ksuba, the husband is talking about that, but the ksuba, I should have said, is a declaration in first person. I hereby pledge A, B, C, D, and in the event I don't pay, all of my assets are obligated for the payment of the ksuba, even the shirt on my back. Now, there's something very important here. The only assets that are obligated to the ksuba are the assets of the husband, not the assets of the kids per se, meaning the following. If husband dies, whatever assets he had over, whether it's bank accounts, whether it's clothes, although clothes don't have a great resale value, whether it's a car, whether it's an apartment building, whether it's a pension fund, whether it's real estate, all of those assets are subject to the collection of the ksuba. So if the woman is not paid off, she could go to a basin and have the uh, man's house sold or the man's car sold or the man's real estate sold to pay the ksuba. That's true. But only the stuff that the kids or the heirs got from the husband. Meaning, the heirs, even their own children, only figured they want to take care of their mother, or maybe it's a stepmother, they should take care of her too. The children are not personally liable, you understand that? Which actually means, it's a real problem. If a man dies with insufficient assets to meet his kasuva obligations, she is owed money without a way of collecting it. Meaning, even if the heirs are multimillionaires, they're not liable. The ksuva is not an obligation on them. It's a lien on property. You understand the implication of that? It's a lien on assets that the husband owned. But it's not... In fact, this is a, actually... I mean, the truth of the matter is... Um, Lahavdil, you know, taxes are exactly the same. I mean, if a man dies and he owes taxes, the IRS can go after his property to collect the income tax. Now, obviously, that's going to hurt the heirs. But if the property is insufficient to pay the tax bill, the heirs are not personally liable for those taxes. They're only liable to the extent of the property. Now, they may want to pay, if they want to keep the apartment building, maybe they'll pay the tax. Same thing here. Heirs have pressure to pay a ksuba because they don't want property sold. So de facto, they may wind up paying. But they don't have a halacha obligation to pay. They can simply say, collect it from the property. Okay, so that's the lien of the ksuba, the L-I-E-N, and it's a lien on real and personal. Nechasim, property, that the husband owned during his lifetime. By the way, the lien theoretically even extends to sold property. That's an amazing thing. If the husband sold his, uh, a property during his lifetime, after he was married, she could identify the purchaser. 
and take the property from the purchaser for the payment of the ksuba. That's the nature of a lien. It follows the property even when the property is sold. Yeah. Um, I know we're talking about the sphere of halacha right now, but I'm like very curious how this plays out when it comes into like contention with like separate community property. Yeah. Well, it's like would those overcome like what, if there's like right of survivorship, like would that overcome the laws of halacha, or would this overcome like separate? Yeah, uh, I'll get to that. That that's actually a very very excellent excellent question. Um, I'll, I'll come to it in a few, in a few minutes. Um, all right, so, so this is the ksuba, right? So the ksuba is duty to support wife, uh, 200 zuz upon death or divorce, 100 zakuk as additional, optional addition, although now it's become customary, 100 zakuk uh, as a return on the property brought into the marriage, and finally the lien on real and personal property that belonged to the husband, for the collection of the of the yeah. who gets to take care of the kids uh, after a divorce? For example, in biblical times, I can imagine if it took a long time for a woman to get remarried, right. it's hard for her to support kids too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what what are the rules about children? As as you properly uh, properly say, uh, the ksuba says nothing about children. It says nothing about child support. It says nothing about who gets the kids, who takes care of the kids, and and the like. So let's first talk about divorce. In the case of divorce, the Gemara starts off with mechanical rules. And the mechanical rules are, if the kids are below six, the mother is primarily the primary custodial parent. Because young children need to be with the mother more. If the children are above six, six or more, then it depends. Boys are with father, primarily and girls are with mother. So these are presumptions, okay, presumptions. Below six, mother. Six and above, boys go to dad, uh, girls go to mom. Now, these are presumptions, meaning they are the starting points. But in all cases, this will be changed if it be determined that it is best for the children that they be with the other parents. So, for example, if mom is not mentally stable, then even a child under six may go to the father or to a grandparent or, or some other family, or vice versa. If dad is not the best parent, then even if the kids are, even if the boys are 12 or 14, uh, they can go to mom, etc. Meaning, halacha starts off with certain assumptions, but those assumptions are, go- are subject to change based on what is best for the, for the children. Now this is very complicated because what is best for the children you know, may depend on which basin is deciding this. I mean, for example, let's imagine um, you have a Hasidic basin that is very against the internet or movies or something. And let's assume that you know, mom is a super parent, but mom takes the kids to a PG movie you know, uh, every, every month. So nobody would say mom is not a good parent. And yet a Basin might say, oh, you're exposing your child to such trafe. I mean, it's, it's a difficult issue that some ideas might be so strongly held by some rabbis that they, they would treat this as an unfit parent, even though most of us would not consider that to be an unfit parent. So the, where you go to Basin very much depends. And indeed, 
this is sometimes, I'll be honest with you, this is sometimes a point of abuse where a, a, a not uncommon scenario, it can, it can work both ways, but for some reason it seems to play out this way, is that um, sometimes you have Hasidic marriages where the woman, it goes both ways, but, but as I say, for some reason it's more this way. Uh, the woman decides not to be Hasidic anymore. So the woman's a little bit more modern. Now, it doesn't mean she's not orthodox. Well, maybe she's not orthodox. There's some, I think, Netflix shows about that. <laughs> but, but, let's, but, but often she, she, she's still orthodox. She's still orthodox, but she's not Hasidic. <laughs> right? She's not Hasidic. So then there's a huge argument between the couple who should have primary custody of the kids. Now, in a secular court, mom is a 100% fit parent, so there may, either there would be joint custody or maybe she would even get uh, primary custody, or at least joint custody. But husband schleps her in front of a Hasidic Shabbat, and the Hasidic Shabbat sees a woman who may not cover her hair anymore, or a woman that has internet, unfiltered internet, or maybe filtered internet, and say, such a woman, such an evil woman, there's no way we could allow a precious Yiddish neshama. I, I, I don't mean to be funny, I, and you see the problem, meaning to say, the Hasidic Basin can look at somebody who, frankly, is not the worst person in the world, and they will look at her as the worst person in the world. And that can create real problems, meaning to say, they may decide that their best interest determination is to take him away from the mother, when in fact, mom is not abusive. Now, again, there are simple cases. Sometimes mom is crazy or dad is crazy. Okay, I mean, those are very sad cases, but those are simple cases where you got to give primary custody. But when you're dealing with two good people, but one is like more extremely religious than the other, then it very much depends on the basin. In a modern Orthodox basin, they would not use that against mother. In a Hasidic basin, they would. And by the way, the same thing could be true with father and mother. So who decides the basin? So the choice of basin is a real, real big issue. Now, let me just mention one other thing, though. How does this dovetail, this is not yet your question, but how does this dovetail with secular courts? Now remember, a Jewish basin decides child custody based on best interest of the child, and a secular court also decides based on best interest of the child. So you might think they're both doing the same thing. But they're not doing the same thing because the definition of best interest of the child is going to differ between a based in. In fact, in secular court, even if a parent is not religious at all, that's not going to be a black mark. Who says, who says a kid has to be raised Orthodox or Jewish? Meaning, let's take an extreme case. Let's take a case where the mother or the father converted to Christianity. Right? Now, I as a father don't want my kid to go there for good reason. But they go to court and mom is a great parent. She bakes cookies and and goes to every soccer game. She just happens to be a practicing Christian. A secular judge is not going to say, you're a bad parent. And probably they'll either be joint custody or whatever it'll be. A basin, even a modern Orthodox basin, is not going to say that because raising a child to be a non-Jew is obviously not a good thing for a Jewish child. You see? Or, other examples, one parent wants to take the kid out of a Jewish school and go to public school. 
As far as a secular judge is concerned, that's fine. Who says you got to send your kid to yeshiva? A base then would absolutely say. So this is very important. A secular court may be applying the same test, best interest of the child, but it'll be in a very different way. So now, here is the question. Let's assume, and again, I'm, I'm using mom simply because in my experience, those tend to be the case. Mom is a bit modern. And this can range from anything as going to movies or wearing pants or not covering her hair or internet to, God forbid, the extreme of she believes in Jesus. Okay? But she's a great parent. Other than that, she's a great parent. In Bayston, she's going to lose custody for sure. And she's going to lose custody for sure because, because obviously in, in the eyes of Halakha, she's not called a fit parent because she's not going to raise her child Jewish. Uh, in terms of internet, that depends on the basin. In terms of Christianity, for sure, she's going to lose. If she goes to secular court, she's going to win. Or at least get joint, joint custody because this is not a negative thing. Now, it may depend. It may be negative. I'll tell you, it may be negative if the kid is 10 years old and was raised... See, that's interesting. If a child was raised for 10 years as an Orthodox Jew and now mom is totally changing it, that may be a negative even in a secular court because the child is used to a certain stability. So I misspoke a little bit when I said it's not a negative at all. But I will tell you, if the child is like one year old and doesn't really know what's going on, a secular court frankly doesn't care if the kid is raised Jewish or Christian. Because from a secular standpoint, freedom of religion, what, what difference does it make? So here's the question, halakhically, if a woman or a man is not happy with what the Basin has decided, or they don't want to go to the Basin because they can anticipate what the Basin will decide, are they just allowed, anyone, whoever wants to do it, to bypass the Basin and ask that a secular court adjudicate child custody? Can they just say, forget about the Basin? So I have to say, the halacha is, it's absolutely usher. Now, of course, if the woman is Christian now, she doesn't care. But, but according to halacha, when two Jews have a dispute, they are obligated to go to a basin. They are not allowed to resolve their dispute in a secular court. So if a from woman asks me, I am afraid I will lose custody in Baston. Can I just refuse to go to the Baston and go to secular court? Tragically, the answer is she cannot refuse to go to the Baston. Hopefully, she'll be able to choose a Baston that, that's more understanding. But to simply say, I don't want to go to Baston, I just want to go to secular court. Now again, many women do it. Sometimes even Orthodox women do it. Halakhically, it's not proper. And if they're not Orthodox, for sure they do it. But halakhically, it's not proper. Child custody matters should be decided in a, in a basin. That's point number one. Point number two. Well, what if the basin decided, and either the husband or wife are not happy with it, legally, let's say le legally, can they challenge it in secular court? So it's interesting, legally they can, and the reason is 
A secular court does not give deference to a based-in decision on child custody because they use different factors. So de facto, meaning factually, if you're not happy with the child custody, you can go to a secular court and get it reversed. But halachically, it's usher to do it. Wouldn't they not be able to even reverse it because it wouldn't go to an appellate court then? It would go to like a trial court. It goes to a trial court. No, that's exactly right. Now, let me me, me explain the difference here. If we agreed to submit an issue to a basin and we signed what's called an arbitration agreement, then the basin decision is normally final. And even if I don't like it, I cannot go to a secular court and have it set aside, the other way around, the secular court will say you are bound by your arbitration agreement. So based in decisions often have finality. They cannot be challenged in court. But the exception is when it comes to children, your agreement to go to based in will not be final because a court always has the right to revisit, this is from secular perspective, always revisit best interest of the children. Which means even if you signed an agreement that all child custody will be decided by the basin, if you don't like it, you can then file a petition, not in an appellate court, in a trial court, to have what's called a de novo. A de novo means a new hearing. And the basin opinion will not be given any respect. So, a parent who doesn't like what the Basin did can legal, legally go to court and set it aside. But halachically, they're not supposed to do that. Halachically, they should accept the Basin. This is very, this is emotionally very, very difficult because if I believe that a Basin has taken my children away from me. You know, every instinct in me is I want to go to a secular court and reverse that. Now, if you, if the basin is corrupt, you know, etc., there, there may be, but, but, but as a general rule, Jewish, Jewish people are supposed to accept the decision of a basin. Okay? So, it's difficult. Again, I, I mean, I'm speaking because I, I, I've been involved in, in all, all types of cases like this, in which sometimes women have been very disadvantaged by certain rulings of basins. And they come to me and they say, well, what can I do? So I got to kind of say, well, you could do this, but you're not supposed to do that. I, I, I kind of tell them what they could do and then say, but you're not supposed to do. But they have the information and often they'll do what they're not supposed to do. And you know, I'm not going to criticize them because when it comes to children, obviously feelings are very, very strong. Okay, you, you see the nature of the problem. Now, again, this is a unique rule about children. If we agreed uh, about some commercial matter and the base then decided, the court is not going to set it aside. The court said, you agree to this. This is called arbitration. And, uh, you know, you're not going to set it aside. Okay? Uh, yeah. Who decides what they Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So, obviously, if they both agree on a base then they go to the base then. Uh, but generally speaking... It all depends on the defendant, meaning if the husband is suing the wife for something, the wife chooses the basin. 
If the wife is suing the husband, the husband chooses to pay still. So in the case of kids, I'll say like in the Hasidish context. Yeah. So the case there, uh, apparently, uh, it's hard to describe anybody suing somebody because they, they both want it. So it would appear that um, either one has a veto, meaning they're going to have to come to an agreement somehow, but uh, the wife does not have to go to the husband's based in, and the husband does not have to go to the wife's based in. And therefore, they're going to have to agree on something. Now, let me just say, by the way, there are two ways based ins work. Uh, in some communities, yes, Yerushalayim, for example, but other big communities, Baltimore, there is an official based in, meaning there is an official rabbinic court of the community. Now, how does that work? Let's take uh, Baltimore, which I know I know a lot about. So Baltimore, let's say, has, I'm making up a number, but has 30 rabbis who have agreed to be on the basin. Now, each basin is only three rabbis. So out of the 30 rabbis who are members of the Baltimore basin, the litigants will be told each one should choose one rabbi from the list and the two rabbis will choose the third one. And then, depending on availability, if, if, the, if the three rabbis are available, they will be your based in. If not, you'll have to choose, you know, they'll tell you the rabbi's not available, etc. okay? So that's how it works in Baltimore where you have an official community based in, but you still get to choose because the panel is 30 rabbis and each one chooses one. In a lot of smaller communities, maybe most communities in the United States, there is no community basin at all. All you have, you know, Crown Heights has a community basin, for example, well, but all you have in most communities is you have rabbis, if that. So there, you simply have to follow the same procedure in which I choose one rabbi, you choose one rabbi, and the two rabbis choose a third rabbi. That's more of an ad hoc basin in which they're not official members of a basin because there is no official based in. Uh, that is called uh, Zabla. Zabla, Z-A-B-L-A, which is in Hebrew, Zion, Laman, Beis, Aleph. That means Zeb, Boer, Lo, Echad. Each one chooses one. But the truth is, even in the Baltimore based in, you're still working with Zabla. Now, there are some based in, I think maybe Crown Heights is that way, where you don't have a panel at all. You literally just have three rabbis and they are the based in. Okay, so you have three types of basins. You have the basin in which there are three designated rabbis who are the judges of the community. Uh, you have the opposite extreme in which each side picks one and the two rabbis pick a third. And then you have the Baltimore model which is in the middle in which there is a panel of 30 rabbis on the official basin and people choose from that, from that panel. Okay, so... Who, who elects the basin in the community? Are you talking about well in Crown Heights? Yeah, yeah. So who? Yeah, yeah. So uh, right. So the question becomes: uh, in the other options, every rabbi is kind of a member. But if you're talking about a designated based in, so I, it, it may depend. But often, often, uh, the members appoint their successors or replacements. Meaning to say, uh, I'm on the based in. I appoint this person to be on the based in. Right. So they kind of appoint themselves. Afterwards, um, I don't think I don't think the Rebbe was in Crown Heights. I don't think the Rebbe. I mean, he approved in the sense that they they went to him, but I, I don't think he actively appointed. Meaning, uh, 
they appointed, and then they went to the Rebbe for an agreement. But uh, the actual process of appointing, I think, is that the Ayanim themselves uh, appoint. Wait, they're not lawyers. They're literally just they're rabbis. They're not lawyers. They're not lawyers. No, no, no. They're not oh, lawyers. Okay. Now, in some based ins, though, no, no, in, 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 <laughs> no, no. But in, in some, in some. Well, first of all, no. First of all, a lot, a lot of a lot of rabbis are also lawyers. Like you know, I have a law degree myself. Probably from this class, you probably figured that out. But okay. Uh, but the thing is. Um, in the uh, Basin of America, which is a modern Orthodox basin in Manhattan, a very good basin, uh, which has three judges, three standard judges, they don't, they don't have a panel. Um, at least one of the judges is a lawyer with a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. So uh, I advise people when they deal with a halakhic question that has a lot of legal ramifications, they should go to that type of basin. But even a basin which is just rabbis, will often have lawyers as advisors. They will, uh, they will hire lawyers on staff, like clerks, uh, who will advise them as to the legal, legal status of things. Okay? So that's kind of how this, uh, how this works. Again, I apologize for uh, being overly, overly technical today. Um, but we'll talk more about it, because we still have to talk about widows' rights, what widows are a little different, and the fact that um, in, a, in a good marriage, a lot of these legalities should not even come to the fore. In a good marriage, people share money, they share property. They don't focus on, oh, this is mine and this is yours, right? Uh, the legal structures are when things are not working so well. When things are working well, there's a lot more looseness in how we deal with money, okay? But still, still, uh, uh, to this day, many, many say that money and property is one of the main causes of marital disagreements, so sometimes it's good to at least have a structure by which these things can be adjudicated. Okay, we'll stop here and have a good, uh, good week.